And what a, a wheel temperature detector does exactly what you think it would do. It's a thermometer it, for your wheels. It's a thermometer for your wheels. <laughs> and why is that so important? Because the wheels might be sick. Hello and welcome to the Mobility Podcast. Uh, I'm Greg Rogers from Securing America's Future Energy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. Uh, Pete Gould with Shared Mobility Strategies. And Greg Rodriguez with Best Best and Krieger. Like always, our views are our own. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Um, and I'm really excited about this episode, uh, personally, because we're with uh, Ted Greener. He's the Director of Public Affairs from Association American Railroads. Um, and Mike Rush, he's the Senior Vice President of Safety and Operations. Um, here's, here, we're here to talk about um, all the technologies that are coming into uh, the railroad industry um, and sort of what the lay of the land is on a policy um, on the policy side and just overall the industry sort of trends. But um, Michael, you uh, jump in first and uh, could you tell us a little, a little bit about AAR and uh, what you guys are working on? Sure, thank you. Uh, AAR is a nonprofit trade association. We represent both uh, freight and passenger railroads throughout not only the United States but Canada and Mexico as well. We engage in traditional advocacy issues as that you would expect of a typical trade association here in Washington, D.C., but we also do a lot more. We have the world's foremost research facility in Pueblo, Colorado, that does research not only for the railroad industry here, but railroads, as I said, across the world, in Europe, uh, in Asia, uh, China. Um, it's a, quite, a, quite a facility. Actually, I would encourage you free to, if you ever have a chance to out there, to take a look. We also have an uh, IT subsidiary in North Carolina. We perform a lot of IT functions for the railroad industry. Let me also, it might be useful to uh, provide some a little brief background, it's kind of a Railroad 101 about some facts of the railroad industry. Mm -hmm. We have about 140,000 route miles in the United States. There are seven large freight railroads. Uh, referred to by the industry as class one railroads and over 500 smaller railroads referred to as short lines. We employ 225,000 people. Uh, from an environmental perspective, I think we already have a pretty good story to tell. Uh, on average, we get 468 revenue ton miles per gallon of fuel consumed. According to a DOT study, uh, on respect to traffic that can go either by rail versus truck, what we call truck competitive traffic, we're four times more fuel efficient than our trucking brethren. From a safety perspective, we've made a lot of strides over the last few decades. Just over the last decade, our mainline train accident rate is down 32%. From an employee perspective, we have lower employee injury rates than agriculture, manufacturing, construction, even hotels. Um, but having said all that stuff, I, I, let me just make one observation because it you know, should be a full story. You know, our most troublesome safety issue are trespassers and grade crossings. Uh, we, our trespasser and grade crossing fatalities are over 700 per year, approaching 750. We only have 12 employee fatalities per year. That's 12 too many. But just as we have this discussion, I think we're going to return to that fact. That's probably our biggest public policy concern. You know, concern. And of course, from a grade crossing and trespasser perspective, those are things that are outside the industry's control. Mm -hmm. So that's just a little background. Um, let me maybe talk a little bit about policy issues that are confronting the industry today, some of the significant policy issues. From a safety issue, uh, the biggest policy uh, issue facing us is the rollout of something called positive train control. And what positive train control is a system that will correct for four types of human error. 
It will address train collisions. It will prevent two trains from colliding. It will prevent a train from going too fast and over, avoiding an overspeed derailment. It will avoid a train going through a switch left in the wrong position. Someone forgot to throw a switch. A switch is leading to a siding. It'll prevent the train from going through that switch left in a wrong position. And it'll prevent a train from going into a work zone. You may have a section of track where employees are working. You don't want a train there. The PTC system will sense that. So what the PTC system will do is override four significant causes of human error. It's a very exciting technology. It's also a technology that's proved very challenging for the uh, industry. And this is a technology, I should mention, that's required of freight railroads that transport um, what we call toxic by inhalation, poisonous by inhalation hazardous materials, and it applies to railroads that transport passengers. So it's both a freight and a passenger industry. Mm -hmm. it's, been a, it's a statutory mandate that was enacted in 2008. It's proven very hard to implement. Um, before all is said and done, the railroads together will spend over $11 billion uh, to construct the system. Um, it has to be an interoperable system given the network, and that's proven to be a big obstacle. And by interoperable, I mean if I have a passenger railroad operating on a freight uh, operating on track that's owned by a freight railroad. Which is often the case, which right? With Amtrak, often, they have to op op often operate on freight railroads, right? Absolutely. And the Northeast Corridor, of course, is owned by Amtrak. Mm -hmm. Where Amtrak operates elsewhere, or commuter railroads throughout the country, Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, they're operating on freight railroad track. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a PTC system, which will work when one railroad's equipment is operating over another railroad. Mm -hmm. um, a very important key, uh, that's been a key obstacle, we're, we're getting there, we're developing uh, this system, but that's been proven to be a very hard road to get that interoperable system developed. And I should mention there are two fundamental different types of PTC system. There's a system called Access in the Northeast, and elsewhere there's a system called IETMS, excuse me. And the two fundamental differences is the Northeast system, which is kind of a legacy system, uses transponders in the track, while the IETMS system is, is, to, is to basically using radio communications, satellite communications to detect where the train is. Um, it's a system that's also being rolled out, I should say, in Europe as well. They also are rolling out positive train control, but because of their, and they call it something else, but because of the interoperability concerns, we're actually ahead of Europe in terms of rolling out PTC. We'll have all the freight railroads, will have all the PTC hardware installed by the end of this year, which actually is a statutory deadline. Mm -hmm. They'll have, they'll be operating PTC on about 80% of their track for which PTC is mandated. The final completion for all the rest of it is the end of 2020. So that's a very important policy issue from a public policy perspective and indeed from a railroad perspective in terms of um, technology and where we're going and from a safety perspective and a business perspective to get PTC right. Right, and I think that the, you know, the 10, 12 years that it takes really shows how challenging this is too. I mean, PTC isn't full automation, it's basically like sort of this force fields you're creating around right. the train to be able to detect something ahead of time and respond to it. Um, and I think that says something about how much more difficult it is when we're dealing with railroads because you have all this 
all this capital investment, you have all this land, you have all these jurisdictions, you have the transit agencies, you have the Amtrak and the freight railroads, and balancing that's difficult too, I imagine. Very difficult, and you know, let me explain a little bit about, you know, if you think about PTC, why is it so complicated? Geez, all you have to do is communicate with a satellite, you know where the railroad, the, the locomotive is, correct? It's not that simple. Doesn't my XM radio do that? It talks <laughs> exactly. to satellite, it's done? Exactly, because it feels like, as opposed to talking about an autonomous vehicle, right. you have, a fewer number of things going on on the most closed, you know, repeatable <laughs> track. Like these are the things that like the shuttles can are practicing on first right. with autonomous vehicles because you're doing the same place over and over and over again. You can map it out. Mm -hmm. So let's let's. So talk how does about, that not apply? On so let's talk about what's involved with PTC and what makes it so mm -hmm. difficult. So picture a train that could have 150 cars loaded with coal, a very high, you know, heavy commodity, which would take over a mile to stop. Mm -hmm. So now think of that train going down the track. You have to map every single curve. You have to know the grade. You have to know, um, uh, that's obviously you have to be tracking the speed of the train, which you can do, but you have to know every single asset that's along the right away. Where's the switch located? Um, that's about 500, over 500,000 assets that have to be mapped and memorized by the PTC system. And then you have to have a breaking algorithm. You have to create a breaking algorithm. At what point does that train have to stop? Not only does it have to know the assets that are on the track, it has to know how big that train is. How, what is it carrying? How long is the train? Because you, you need to be able to stop with some efficiency. If you stop prematurely, not only is that inefficient from a business perspective, but you may be blocking a great crossing. Right. You may be driving the community crazy. Um, <laughs> and remember, it's in the public interest that we be able to operate somewhat efficiently. We are very fuel efficient. We provide a very uh, substantial environmental benefit and obviously a business benefit to our customers. You know, we we're, we um, account for, last time it was studied, about 40% of the inner city uh, ton mileage. So you got you know, it's a very complicated system. We spent a lot of time, in fact, the braking algorithm was developed by our uh, subsidiary in Colorado. They took years to develop something that would not be overly conservative and that would prevent, you know, would enable an efficient transportation mode, but yet provide the safety benefits we need. And maybe one infrastructure question is, is also an issue with PTC connectivity, because you talked about transponders and radio communications. And for those of us, you know, I, I grew up in California and did a lot of work between Sacramento and Oakland, take the Capitol Corridor or even down south. Sure. There are certain parts where you lose the Wi-Fi right. connection. Mm -hmm. So I assume there's kind of a connectivity so, issue to this? So we, we, you know, part of our installation uh, challenge actually is, is to install uh, a bunch of radio towers along the right-of-way. Um, and actually that proved to be problematic. Um, <laughs> we had went into some FCC issues and we have radio towers installed all along the right-of-way. We had to design a special radio to work for PTC. Um, and to give you an idea of some of the complexity, the initial radio we, we, uh, we used is what's called a static band. If you think about it, a static band radio, right? It only uses one band. Well, we found in concentrated areas like Chicago where there's so much train traffic and so much messaging, that wasn't sufficient. So we've just developed a dynamic band radio wow. to, you know, to, to substitute for that. Um, so yes, communication is, is a big, big issue. Now having said that, if there's a problem that arises, the system's designed to fail safe. You know, the train just doesn't continue mm -hmm. if all of a sudden it doesn't have instructions in terms of what to do. So the system is a fail-safe system, um, but that communications aspect that you, you, you referred to is a key issue that we've been struggling with. We also had to acquire sufficient spectrum um, for this system. 
And uh, you know, the railroads have gotten it, or at least on the freight side, and I think the passenger railroads are pretty much done as well with acquiring that spectrum. That took years to acquire spectrum throughout the country. Everybody has to be on the same, you know, PTC 220, 220 mm -hmm. you know, megahertz uh, frequency to operate, and um, uh, that took a, a, quite a while to acquire the spectrum. It had to be swapping and all sorts of stuff going on. Was that acquired through uh, auctions at the FCC, or did you get specific so, statutory authority? So actually, a different for the freight railroads, um, we actually established a subsidiary, PTC 220, uh, to accomplish that spectrum, uh, acquire that spectrum. Some of it was that way. Some of it was swapping frequencies with those who possessed the necessary spectrum. Um, it, you had to look at the different locations, but it was it was it wasn't easy, but it was done. And the only reason I ask, I think that's interesting because you know we also talk about automated and connected vehicles. We're talking about a dedicated corridor that already exists for right. rail. Now we have to think about all these issues as we deploy vehicles just on our streets across the country yeah. in, in different environments. So I yeah. think that's a great kind of um, you know case study of, of the complications that exist. And I'll give you another example of the complications. Um, in the Northeast Quarter, there will be trains that will be side-by-side -side operating the two different kinds of systems I talked about. The transponder-based system that Amtrak uses called Access, and a lot of the commuter railroads in the Northeast will be using an IETMS. What we found in Pennsylvania, where they were close by, there were conflicts. So we had to resolve those conflicts um, that were going on. So, it, it, you know, you would think it's a simple, simple uh, idea to put in practice. Not so simple. So that was great to hear the background of PTC and some of the exciting progress that, that's going on and the complications around it. How important is PTC to set up the foundation for uh, some of the talk around automated trains in the future? So maybe let me start off and go back in history a little bit in terms of PTC and the railroad industry. Before the congressional mandate to adopt PTC in 2008, there were a number of railroads in the country which were uh, piloting their own PTC projects. In fact, there was one through the AAR in cooperation with the Department of Transportation. And the reason why the industry was interested in PTC besides the obvious safety benefits was business benefits. So PTC has the potential to really increase the capacity of the network through automation. And if you think of why, so the way the railroads operate today, you have a section of track, which we call a block, and basically one train can operate, can occupy a block at a time. Two trains occupy a block, you ran the risk of an accident, okay. And they're fixed blocks, which is very, it's not the optimal from a capacity perspective. And one of the things PTC has the capability of doing, the next generation of PTC, is what we call a moving block. So as that train goes, if you think of a block, it goes with the train. And that can really increase the number of trains that can occupy a, you know, a section of track. So from an automation perspective, that's one issue. Now you've asked a second question, which is, what else can PTC do from an automation perspective? And as we look down the road, at the next generation or maybe the generation of PTC after that, we could be talking about more efficient train operations, um, which have either one person in the crew or maybe even no one in the crew. And I'm gonna to point to a real world example today. In Australia, there's a railroad called the Rio Tinto Railroad. And over the last year, it's in a very remote section of Australia, uh, there aren't too many people, and over the last year, it's been operating in a fully automated mode with one engineer or one employee in the cab. And they just announced two weeks ago, they are now, they've now started to operate with no one in the cab. So an automated train concept is here. Now, applying that to the US, obviously, 
it's one thing to be operating in a remote section of Australia where nobody lives. Mm -hmm. It's another section to be applying it in the United States with this very intense freight and passenger rail network. And obviously a lot of work has to be done. But you certainly can see the capacity or the, the potential for you know automated train, full of further automation of train operations. Maybe even someday uh, trains operating here in the US without an employee in the cab. Again, there's significant, um, certainly significant business benefits and significant, I think, would say safety benefits as well. I'd also point out from a sustainability perspective, you know, we already are using technology in the train to tell the engineer what the optimal notch, what we call notch, essentially it's a position. A locomotive has eight different notches typically, and it's basically the speed, to mm -hmm. use a, mm -hmm. a mundane phrase for operating yeah. the, the locomotive. And we already have technology in the locomotive to help that engineer figure out what the most optimal uh, notch position is from a fuel consumption perspective. It's very important for the railroads are major consumers of fuel, lots of fuel. Well, you can see, as, as the automation technology develops, you can see the ability for that um, uh, train to become even more fuel efficient, as you do it from an automated perspective as opposed to you know, a human being. Um, so there's a lot of potentials for both from a business perspective, safety perspective, um, and even perhaps a sustainability perspective that automation has to offer. Yeah, could, I'll just jump in on the, on the mm -hmm. business perspective. I think it's interesting, um, you know, the, the, the positive effects of creating efficiencies mm -hmm. um, will have ultimate real-world benefits. So the Federal Highway Administration expects about a 40% increase in freight transportation in the U.S. Clearly, railroads feel that they um, will be and need to be part of uh, the solution of moving all that freight. Um, you know, and only you know, you, you look at the the rise of e-commerce and 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 um, you know, shipping companies like Amazon. Uh, the single largest customer of the the industry right now across the network is UPS. Mm -hmm. Most people probably wouldn't picture that. And the single largest kind of growth sector for the industry is intermodal. All of that correlates one to one really with uh, this increase of freight demand in the U.S. alongside other traditional commodities that are inputs for manufacturing, et cetera. It's a long way of saying, clearly, automation and, and the ability to implement technology just to be more efficient mm -hmm. will be critical just to be able to move all these goods that we all now you know, need to consume on a daily basis. So, I mean, obviously, there's a flip side to that, and this is something that comes up a lot, you know, so of the 225,000 employees, how many are on, on, you know, on rail operators and stuff that would be, you know, would be the inefficiency that is, right. is being uh, you know, mm -hmm. taken care of so or eliminated. So clearly, the, you know, as we evolve in technology, clearly there could be job impacts. Some jobs go away, new jobs are created. Now, when I first started with the industry, which was more decades <laughs> ago than I'd like to uh, think about, um, we actually were using four and five person crews. So we are down now to two person crews as a standard. Sometimes they use three, but typically two, and Amtrak uses a lot of one person crews. So, um, you know, we have seen this migration with technology uh, over time with reduced crew size. Clearly that will happen. Now, when, even, with, even if you had an automated train, you're, you're going to need some crew staffing, maybe a mobile crew staffing for some purposes. A train breaks down, you know, issues will happen, new, so new jobs will be created. I'm not going to sit here and say there won't be any adverse job impacts um, in terms of total employment. I can't say that. But as things evolve, you know, you never know, you know, what's going to be created, but you're not going to be completely get rid of people who will need to, to look at that train at some point in time. 
Before we get off the automated train and automated vehicle concept, I'd just like to return to one thing I said kind of in the beginning in terms of describing the industry. I talked a little bit about grade crossing accidents and how they represent such a big percentage of the fatalities in the industry. You know, one of the things that's been attractive to us as we think about automated technology is that how do we reduce all those grade crossing fatalities, 94% of which are attributable to human error? Um, so, one of the things we're thinking about is that if you think of a truck or a car going down the road, it comes to a four-way intersection. That automated truck or car is going to have to know what traffic is going on around it, what's coming from the left, what's coming from the right. Well, a grade crossing is kind of the same way when you think about it. What, is that train coming from the left? Is that train coming from the right? Now, with grade crossing accidents, a long train takes over a mile to stop. Mm -hmm. You know, so it doesn't do any good for the train as it's right there at the intersection to say, oh my gosh, there's a car or a truck there, stop. It, it can't happen. But we're thinking that if you can equip the, that truck or that car with some automated technology to sense that there's a train coming, that can really have a significant impact on one of the two biggest you know, human fatality issues facing the industry, which is great crossing fatality. So I just want to make sure you know, your listeners have an opportunity to understand there is an intersection between automated rail and automated highway operations. Mm -hmm. And now this might be a really stupid question, but do, if you had automated trains, um, does that open up the possibility of having more but shorter trains? Is it a lab is it a you know unit cost of labor that is why you'll you'll go for as long, or is it that the you know, the the engine is the most expensive part of these, and so you stack as many on as you can? So um, there's a number of factors. Um, certainly. You know, crew size, you know, cr crews are one of them in terms of the human cost. But again, think of what I was talking about with respect to blocks, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one train can operate a at a block at a time. The longer the train, the more efficient you are from an operating perspective in terms of that block. You actually can get more throughput when you're operating with a longer train. So there are business reasons for having a, a longer train. It's not just a question of... So it doesn't shorten the block or make it no, more no, maneuver? No, okay. no, no. Um, and um, so, you know, there's lots of the considerations that go into cr uh, train size. Um, but just and think about it, you know, from a grade crossing perspective, people say, why is there such a long train? Well, if you had more trains... It's either that or... More, yeah, it's, more it's, it's either a longer red light yeah, or, so, or you keep catching them. Yeah, okay. so, you know, there, is a, there are trade-offs with respect to train okay. size. I just wanted to touch on one thing on the kind of the workforce implications yeah. that you're getting at. You know, I think your listeners should know that regardless of anything, that our industry, our workforce is 100% unionized. Yeah. So, um, you know, all of those discussions will happen against the backdrop of collective bargaining. Yeah. Uh, and Which so, is probably why you still have two versus the... <laughs> But, 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 no, so today, so today, no, no, I don't want to no, no, about diminish the role of the engineer and the conductor. Uh, today, certainly in the pre-PTC pre world, we need most in many operations. You, you need to have both an engineer and a conductor. Right. Now, PTC, if you think about it again, addressing those four causes of human factor causes of accidents, there's certainly an argument to be made that the conductor role becomes redundant. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> And you know, one of the roles in particular, I'll say, that conductor serves today is if there's an instruction that comes you know, to the train while it's in operation, oh, you have to stop here because there's a work crew ahead of time. That conductor takes that message while the engineer is operating the train. Now, of course, via, via the PTC display that's in the cab, you can have that instruction come electronically so the engineer is not going to be distracted picking up the radio and having that conversation with the dispatcher. So, um, 
you know, right now, you know, again, as, as Ted said, all this will be collectively bargained. It was collectively bargained when we reduced our crew sizes from five to two. It will, it will have to be that way. Um, but we'll go down that path at some point. Yeah, and I would just add, the only other thing I add too is, um, you know, one, we're no different than a lot of industries in this discussion, a discussion that I'm personally fascinated by, uh, you know, against you know, a lot of talk about, you know, UBI or, uh, you know, work for all, all of that's of mm -hmm. course the crux of, of, of automation. Um, but, you know, we, we are not blowing smoke when we talk about creating new jobs. PTC is a great example of that. There was wholly new created jobs as a result of PTC development and implementation. This was uh, for building, uh, putting the infrastructure in. This was for sort of managing it and making sure interoperable is the things like that. that sure, and then, but, but, but you know, if you think of PTC as an ongoing function, so you have all those wayside units, for example, those radio towers, you're actually creating, you know, those kinds of jobs for your uh, signal employees, right? Mm -hmm. They're gonna have, you know, new you know new functions so there will be different functions going forward yeah I mean I think uh, you know Union Pacific one of our members um, has a great post on their website uh, where they talk about what's going on and they talk about their drone program mm -hmm. those jobs simply didn't exist before they started flying drones on their network to inspect bridges mm -hmm. um, and I would note that it's a lot safer to inspect those bridges than right. you know repelling from big bridges hanging over you know gorges and such so <laughs> right. um, you know it, it, there is legitimate job creation occurring as a result of technology. They're just different jobs. Right. And, then, and then one thing, to, I, I think this is a great discussion and I'm glad we're not shying away from it because it is a difficult one and an important one. But So my brother-in-law used to conduct trains on freight railroads mm -hmm. and he did the very difficult passes where you went under, under in tunnels and had to use oxygen masks because you were in tunnels for yes. so long. Mm -hmm. And needless to say, when you read a lot about the accidents, that are occurring right now. I mean, there's a huge stress and emotional factor that comes in. So I, I see automation as an opportunity of alleviating some of those stressful moments and kind of repurposing the duties for lack of better words. And, yes. and I think, again, important discussion that, you know, a, a lot, it's a hot topic here in DC and we're talking about from a policy perspective, but it's great that we're talking about the human element to all this. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, just today, the president, Held an event, okay. right? Um, what do you do now? <laughs> what about the future of work? Oh, right. Um, and they signed an executive order, which is, I'd be lying if I said I read, but about you know yeah. how are we going to work, you know, work, work, work training, etc. So yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I think that's important too. And um, here at Secure America's Future Energy, we published a report on ABs and the workforce, and you were looking at trucking in, the, in this example and taxi drivers. But just like what you guys said, I mean, there are a lot of spillover jobs that are going to be created mm -hmm. and. Um, also, this is going to be very gradual. I don't think that any of your railroads are going to want to immediately go to um, zero people in the right. train. Um, and then there are the real economic benefits from reducing collisions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, came out to like $800 billion of benefits. And that's just from automating vehicles. And when you look at what's happening with drones, what's happening, as we just talked about, and what's happening with rail, I think it's interesting to see the real benefits of automation that are causing these spillover effects. And let me say, you know, everyone's fascinated with the idea of automated trucks, automated cars, and automated trains. Um, mm -hmm. But there's many other technological things that we're excited about in the industry. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, you look at your three basic DTL causes of railroad accidents. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, human factors, track, and mechanical. So mm -hmm. PTC is a way of addressing uh, human factors accidents. Let's talk about track accidents, for example. Um, we have 
um, several different types of uh, track vehicles. We have track uh, inspection vehicles. We have track inspection vehicles that use ultrasonic technology. We have track uh, vehicles that measure the geometry. Is the gauge proper? You know that we can uh, use over the track to just ensure safety. And you know, when you have an accident, it's not only a safety issue; it's a business efficiency issue. Mm -hmm. On the mechanical side, and that by that I mean the rail, the locomotive, the rail car that's going over the track. We have a number of different you know, automation technolo technologies that we're looking at uh, to improve safety. So a, a great illustration of the technology we use for our rolling stock locomotives and rail cars is a wheel temperature detector. And what a, a wheel temperature detector does exactly what you think it would do. It's a thermometer it, for your wheels. It's a thermometer for your wheels. <laughs> and why is that so important? Because the wheels might be sick. Ah, uh, the brakes might be sick. You know, it's not good when your brakes fail, uh, as, you, as you all know from driving your cars. And so what a wheel temperature detector will do is it will measure the temperature of the, all the wheels in the, in, the, in the train. And if you have a wheel that's disproportionately cold, what does that mean? It means the brakes Typically haven't applied. Typically the third applied. wheel. Yeah. <laughs> brakes haven't applied. And I, guess, <laughs> I just, I couldn't. I could not. He, he will not be here all night. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm if sorry. You know, if you have a wheel that's too hot, that's fine. If you have a wheel that's too hot, that means the brakes are sticking. And we've done some testing, and we wheel temperature detectors are four times more efficient or effective than the human eye at detecting problem brakes. So that's just an example of you know how a technology can really serve a very significant a safety perspective. Another uh, interesting technology, if that's the right word, and I'm not sure it's quite the right adjective to use in terms of industry endeavors, is a program that we've been unveiling over the last decade called Asset Health. Now, what does Asset Health mean? And it's really focusing on that rolling stock, uh, the rail cars in particular. So the way the railroad industry operates, if you think of it, is rail cars don't stay on one railroad. They go from one rail to another. If I have a rail car that has to go from New York to California, there is no railroad that operates from New York to California. It's got to go on at least two railroads. So what Asset Health does, it takes all this data that's from the various technologies that we have along the right of way, um, detecting issues with the, with the train. And one solitary reading may not mean anything with respect to a car. But if you get a bunch of them, you may be able to detect a problematic car for whatever the problem reason might be. And so what the Asset Health Program is, it's something that we administer through the AAR, it collects the data from all the different railroads on the rail equipment and analyzes the data to try to find those problematic rail cars, where one railroad in isolation may not have enough data to know that I have a problem here. But when you put the data all together, you know that I have a problem and I need to set this car aside and take a look at it. That's a pretty exciting program. It doesn't, you know, it's not maybe as exciting as the individual technologies, but putting this big data together is actually, we think, a really significant initiative in the industry. That's great. And you're, so the, you're coordinating, AAR is coordinating the collection of that data right. on behalf of all your members. So remember I mentioned we have an IT subsidiary in North Carolina called right. Railink. Mm -hmm. That's where the work is done. You know, they, we get all the information reported to Railink. Actually, Railink can do a lot of things. It can tell you where the various rail cars are in the country. We do a lot of data amass, amassing of data uh, for the railroad industry, and this is one particularly important thing that we do with the data. It's a very important initiative. I think people are very excited about it. It could really be a game changer in terms of keeping equipment on the track from both a business perspective and a safety perspective. Yeah, and that's a kudos to the industry and then you all for recognizing the importance mm -hmm. in that investment. 
Uh, and now I want to jump in. You know, obviously, uh, you said a lot of the excitement is on the uh, passenger side for autonomy. The other kind of still shiny but slightly less, you know, media sexy is, is on the autonomous trucking. Um, obviously, that there's a, a dynamic of, of, you know, fierce competition between rail and trucking. And so I'd love to get your your perspective on what a fully autonomous you know, commercial motor vehicle uh, means to the rail industry. You know, from a competitive standpoint, but also, you know, what are the where would the dynamics be of when I would when would rail um, be able to be even most competitive against a you know fully driverless? Truck, sure, if that exists. And maybe one additional context is a lot of people hear that word platooning of trucks yes. mm-hmm. and essentially tailgating of trucks. So. Then you think of a lot of people then go, well, isn't that just a bunch of trucks on the road that look like a train? Right. And so, obviously, from a business perspective, one of the things we offer our customers is a very efficient way of transportation, the ability to have those 150-car trains. Um, And, you know, one uh, double-stack train can take, you know, 180 trucks off the road, for example. That's a pretty um, major advantage. So if you start thinking about the world of platooning trucks, which as you say is sort of the idea of kind of a truck on rubber wheels. Um, will that, how will that impact our economic advantage? And it's certainly something that could adversely affect our economic advantage and could take traffic away. And when you think about it from a competitive perspective, there's a lot of, a lot of public policy in this country which is driving towards the ability of the trucks to operate autonomously or operate in a platooning kind of uh, persp- framework. It's important that the public, from a public policy perspective, we allow the road industry to be as efficient as possible. Remember, I talked about the sustainability advantages. We're very fuel efficient. Um, you know, we are very economically, uh, you know, uh, important uh, from a safety perspective. Um, you talk about transporting hazardous materials. People want transportation to go by trains. We're a much safer way of transporting that stuff than by trucks. So you want to make give the railroad industry. You don't want to favor. I'm not saying favor us, but give us and put us on a level playing field, and give us the opportunity to be as competitive as possible. And one thing, I, you know, from a competitive perspective, I'd also like to point out one other thing. You know, freight railroads are privately owned in this country. Um, we invest 25 billion dollars a year in our network. That's private funds. On the highway side, our competitors on the trucking industry operate on a publicly subsidized network. They don't pay the share of damage they cause to the roadway. So we already have, from a public policy perspective... To be fair, no of, one pays their fair share damage <laughs> on the roads. We uh, have a point. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. That is a whole other conversation. Well, I hear you. That is true. <laughs> no, there is no donor state. Everyone is all subsidized by general yeah. funds. And yeah. truckers are asking to pay more. <laughs> yeah. uh, Absolutely. Now, impact, yeah. that was not proportional. Yeah. Right. A truck. Right. Like big truck right. or commercial vehicle versus a passenger vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But still, but we, we are probably, you know, the freight railroad side of the shop is privately owned. We do, you know, all the investments on our side, and I think, again, from a public policy perspective, um, uh, it's important that we give the railroads a fair opportunity to remain competitive, and that's our concern with respect to platooning trucks. We already have the decks stacked a little bit against us. We don't want them stacked against us anymore. And and for platooning trucks to work, imagine you said the word traffic, but it, it imagines this world where we have an ideal operating environment there's no traffic on our roads right. you have this existing corridor already laid the infrastructure 
where things are working right now and, and, it, and there's no guesswork involved. And from a congestion perspective, remember what I said, one train can take 180 trucks off the road. Um, so, you know, if you think about it from a public policy perspective, we all know we have, gosh, in Washington, D.C. area, we certainly know about congestion. Um, right. You know, the railroads, even leaving aside the fuel efficiency perspective, they do have that to offer as well. Actually, this is my whole thing when you talk about autonomy and all this, even in a couple of ways. First, in the right now, how do we get, you know, legal to be street legal, blah, blah, blah. And I've always thought, you know who's got a ton of continuous right-of-way some of which is currently being used, some of which is not, that you could pave over and just have an autobahn of autonomous vehicles is the railroads. And it's so like, that's a huge, you know, it's always obviously been an asset, but when you're looking at something like that, that could actually be a side business down the road of utilizing that, that right of way that's not an actual, you know, for rail purposes. Because you, again, like we were talking about with the rail, you have this is a repeatable, mappable, kind of contained area. So, anyway, that's my pitch. It's <laughs> <laughs> my terrible idea. Yeah. Don't, nobody get any crazy ideas, yeah. right? Yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is a perfect segue. Yeah, this is the perfect segue. Acquiring right away. Uh, terrible ideas. Next um, episode <laughs> is because we have you here, and you have, uh, you know, not you personally, but the industry has. Uh, decades and decades and hundreds of years of experience in this. Can you explain to us why or why not we, we, or whether or not we will likely ever see an actual Hyperloop? And particularly anywhere, even I'll say within nine times the price, cost, uh, price and timing estimates that have been proposed by Elon Musk. So I'm not going to opine on the technological portion of it because I'm, I'm an expert on it. But I will say this, you know, you talk about infrastructure, infrastructure and, and the right of way in particular. That's a very problematic aspect from creating any kind of new transportation network. And you're even talking on top of, the, on currently, you know, at grade, not yeah. even t t tunneling. Okay. That's, that's exactly right. In fact, <laughs> yeah. when you think about the constraints, so why don't we have, you know, people sometimes ask, why don't we have a high-speed rail system like a Japan, yeah. they have in Japan or in France? Well, part of the issue is the right-of-way. So you need a really nice, straight, dedicated right-of-way. Think of the Northeast Corridor where we have the most concentrated population here. There's no room for a new mm -hmm. dedicated separate right-of-way. So infrastructure or property is a big, big issue with respect to new railroad systems. Now, we, you know, Elon Musk, I know, is proposing this underground system. I just can't imagine what the actual cost would be. <laughs> We have a project right here in D.C. called the Virginia Avenue Tunnel, mm -hmm. um, which has been going on for several years. I, I, I think you know, a couple of you guys live not too far from it and experience the headaches that are caused by that construction. And the concept of that construction is to make the railroad industry more efficient. When we, when we transport containers, all those containers you see on the, uh, being transported by rail or truck, the most efficient way to do it is put one on top of the other, what we call double stack. Well, because of the ancient nature of the corridor on the eastern seaboard, the tunnels were originally built not to accommodate things that were that high. So um, the Eastern Railroads have been on the, embarking on trying to expand their capacity. And here in D.C., a constraint on that, the ability from a north-south perspective to transport double-stack containers has been the height of the tunnels. The amount of effort that went into the Virginia Avenue Tunnel, years of environmental permitting for a very short section of right-of-right-of-way, 
um, the amount of, you know, the community has been not thrilled with all the disruptions with respect to digging this tunnel, okay? This fairly short tunnel, when you think about the Hyperloop, it's about a very short section of track, just to expand it, making a second tunnel and increasing that height. It's just been a huge undertaking, many, many millions of dollars before it's due, and it's not through yet, as, as you guys know. I can't imagine what the cost would be, assuming it's technologically possible, for a Hyperloop and the disruption it would cause to the communities to go from A to B. Now, we'll all, you know, maybe Elon Musk is onto something, <laughs> but I'll have to say I'm a little skeptical from where I sit. <laughs> right. So building and digging things is, uh, is, is expensive mm -hmm. and governments, you can't actually just get a, a letter of approval to build a, a tunnel. Not at all. Um, it, it, you, you have to go, well obviously if any kind of major impact, something like that, usually you're involved with an environmental impact statement because there's going to be some public issue involved with respect to that kind of a project. So that just requires many years uh, of work often. Um, community impacts, you have to work with the communities. And in this case, the Virginia Avenue Tunnel, CSX has spent a lot of effort working with the communities. Uh, but that takes time to, you know, again, to, to, to work that through. Um, uh, Elon's and, very good at that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, so there's a lot of effort that goes into it. And again, we're talking about when you multiply that, you know, doing one mile, for example, by potentially hundreds of miles or tens of miles, it's just a mind-boggling, uh, to me, at least for my small mind, it's a mind-boggling concept. Right. Um, Let's put you down for a maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, I think since we're in D.C., um, it only makes sense to um, ask what uh, you guys would have on your wish list from Congress? Sure. I would mention two things. Um, so, again, you know, all of this discussion about technology, you know, we're doing that in a really highly regulated environment, and certainly the regulatory paradigm at the, the DOT um, and, and its sub-agency, the Federal Railroad Administration, have great standing. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also something to be said for just how long so many of those regulations have been in place. Uh, and our uh, a colleague of ours describes it well as that, it's not that there's so you know so many egregious examples of regulation. It's just a mindset um, of, of of to regulate first um, and two kind of this 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 notion of having um, armor built up over time, right? And just a layer and a layer and a layer of regulation and. Most of that is pretty prescriptive, so we would love to see some type of uh, legislative fix, if you will, to maybe try and um, shift that, that, that mindset to more of a performance or outcome-based mm -hmm. uh, model, uh, which you see in other industries from other regulators. Right. Uh, and, and I think by doing so, you may greater, you know, facilitate uh, technological innovation and deployment. Mm -hmm. so, so, and if I could just give one concrete example, we talked about well temperature detectors. Well, right now, there's... Thermometers. Right, thermometers. <laughs> well temperature thermometers. So, right now, there's a very prescriptive set of manual inspections that have to take place. And remember what I said about the wheel temperature detector being four times more efficient than the human eye. So. In order to do that for now, if we want to use the wheel temperature detectors, in, we can't in lieu of manual inspections. And it's very efficient to do both. Why would you do both? So that's an example of some sort of regulatory relief that we need. Um, it strikes me that the technology, not only that, but then from a compliance and all that, there's a huge opportunities right. for maintaining those same safety you know, checks and requirements mm -hmm. that can be done utilizing technology. But if it's too prescriptive, it 
locks you into having no other right. choice. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Um, and the other item, uh, you know, we talked a lot about trucks. Most estimates are somewhere in the, you know, trucks cover about 80% of their costs. Mm -hmm. And I'll caveat that, that with the fact that they are our largest customer, but of course they're also our largest competitor. By not um, covering those full costs, uh, there's an inherent kind of deflating of, of, of uh, rates. And there's just uh, a, an issue whereby, you know, since 2008, you've seen $143 billion transferred from the general fund to the trust fund. Um, a lot of that surely is due to, um, you know, kind of the, the increasing irrelevance of the gas tax. Um, but And a lack of political will. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and part of that is, too, caused by, you know, the underpayment of commercial vehicles that inflict the overwhelming amount of damage to infrastructure. So um, we'll see it when we see it. But, uh, you know, just today as we record this, Chairman Schuster of the Transportation Infrastructure Committee says that he'll have a blueprint uh, out uh, uh, next week uh, on an infrastructure bill. Uh, infrastructure week again. Oh, yeah, right. it's always infrastructure week. Did it ever end? Never. It's every week. Lock your doors. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I think his, his, his goal is to have that be uh, kind of similar to what, you know, um, Congressman Camp did on tax reform. You know, it's mm -hmm. clearly not going to be a legislative solution, if you will, but um, maybe could lay the groundwork in the next Congress for some type of surface transportation legislation. We would hope that, you know, whatever is done in that will help put the trust fund on a solvent path. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and that we reinstill the notion that users of infrastructure pay for that use. Uh, and that's right. not because simply because we pay for ours. We just think that that's the most equitable way to fund infrastructure in this country. So that's what we'd like to see from Congress. Yeah, and it's fascinating to see because when American Trucking Association. Responsibility and, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, when American Trucking Associations goes before Congress, they always say, please just tax us more. Um, and then they're always, everyone who appears before Congress generally, We'll ask for those gas tax increases, but it's a shame because there's so much gridlock around it. Everyone thinks we're going to get voted out. Yeah, we, and we've, we've been pretty vocal for whatever it's worth um, mm -hmm. in support of more of maybe a, a more future thinking solution, such as a weight distance fee or a mm -hmm. vehicle miles travel tax uh, system, right. uh, you know, that, that in the, you know, the forthcoming, you know, shift to even more electrical vehicles uh, mm -hmm. and or at least more fuel efficient vehicles um, and perhaps, you know, a, a whole army of, of autonomous Ubers taking you, you know, to right. and from who's paying for that. Perhaps a VMT. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of research on that. Is a is a is a more uh, sensible solution. Certainly. Um, one thing I thought is interesting too, since we've sort of covered a lot of the modes, um, is that Transportation Secretary Chow and this new version of the automated vehicles policy actually they did bring in um, FRA Federal Road Administration mm -hmm. to sort of look at hmm. um, how uh, automation is happening across every sort of sphere and every sort of mode. So. Um, it's great to sort of hear about what this looks like on the freight rail end, um, and I'm sure listeners appreciate hearing more about it. But um, if folks want to hear more about what you guys are working on, is there a, it's a website or a Twitter account we can follow? Yeah, absolutely. So AAR.org, uh, and you can find our Facebook and Twitter pages there. Um, and uh, we also have a, a new report out, um, a white paper on uh, technology in the in the industry. So please, you know, definitely check that out, aar.org, and click the technology page at the top of the, the website. Great. And um, do you guys have personal Twitter accounts that uh, folks can follow you on? I do not. 
I do. Good choice. <laughs> One of you made a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. Ted Greener. Okay. Yeah. At Ted Greener. Great. It's and a mix of personal and work. <laughs> but they're just my opinions. So. It's just your opinions, man. Yeah. You're under our cloud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm understand. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, uh, before we leave, anyone have any exciting summer plans you want to share with us? Oh, um, this is when the outro music starts. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to think if I have anything that would be great from an automation perspective, but other than my wife retiring, I have nothing really exciting news coming this summer. I, I don't think you're sending your re resume to Hyperloop, right? Not no. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone have exciting plans or entire sections of, of boxes for the Nats Park that you you know you wanted to? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You don't want to help us out? <laughs> I was, yeah, anyone? Do you guys? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, no, not me. <laughs> Park, just make sure you check out the Norfolk Southern. Uh, That's what I was oh, do you, oh, you tell they do have one. Okay. Yes, hey, of course they do. <laughs> All right, well, great, folks. Um, we will be back uh, with a few more episodes in the coming weeks. Um, thank you guys again for joining us. This oh, great. but real quick, uh, Greg Rodriguez, where can we find you on Twitter? Oh, at SmarterTransPo. And uh, I'm at Shared Mobility S. And I'm at AV Greg R. Um, and you can catch Mobility Podcast at mobilitypodcast.com and also on Twitter at Mobility Podcast. Uh, thank you guys again for joining us. Yeah, this thank was you. Fantastic. Enjoyed the conversation very much. Thank you guys. Great. Take care.